So I am going to do my best to do bi-weekly episodes for the rest of the semester. It's been crazy. Teaching, being a student, I hate it, I love it, it's awesome, but it, it's like riding a bicycle that's on fire. Um, but anyway, the bi-weekly hopefully will give me a little extra time to do research, outline, and record the episodes as well as edit them before I publish them for you all. Um, my goal is obviously to make sure that the episodes are good and of quality. I'm slowly getting back to doing this and of course we're I'm seeing that there's still some listeners coming in from other countries, which is really awesome to see. Um, I think I recently added Vietnam to the list, which is really cool. Um, and so, yeah, so thanks for sharing, continuing to listen, and, you know, download each episode. It really helps me out. Patron shout out! Thank you, Caitlin, for being such a wonderful patron. Your continued support is so incredible and has helped Artwatch grow exponentially. Um, we even have a new fun intro because of this. So do you want to support Artwatch Podcast? There are now two ways that you can do this. There's the donation tab on Artwatch Podcast website. It will allow you to create a one-time donation in any amount of your choosing. Or if you want to be a monthly patron, you can always click the link to Patreon. And all of these links are on my social media, at Artwatch Podcast, and they're also on the website, artwatchpodcast.com. Um, if you do become a patron, there are different levels, and you should definitely check it out, because some of them you can get original art created by me. Um, so check out the website, artwatchpodcast.com, and, you know, make sure you follow on social media. So... Really awesome today. We have a special guest, and crazy enough, it's Caitlin, our patron. So, Hello. Caitlin, tell us about you. So, uh, I am currently an instructor of arts and humanities at Lamar State College Orange, which is a community college in Southeast Texas. Uh, and I'm also a freelance writer uh, writing about Texas contemporary art uh, for. Um, publications such as Glass Tire, and I have an upcoming uh, publication for Southwest Contemporary. Uh, oh, so I'm, awesome. Yeah, so I'm working on developing my relationships with uh, Texas-based publications, uh, expanding, you know, my outreach to hopefully, you know, have readers outside of Texas reading my stuff, um, and, and, you know, always, always, always trying to develop my critical voice um and and like tori mentioned we went to uh together i have a master's in art history and then uh in my previous life um i was a french teacher and so i have a master's in french as well and i'm super excited that tori asked me to talk about visual analysis today uh because this is such an important tool no matter what your discipline is um and uh i i really believe that anybody can write a visual analysis it's a matter of following the directions and really trying to um, you know, capture the the breadth, depth, and height of the object that you're you're talking about. Yeah. So uh, before we jump too much further into today's topic, uh, I just want to know a little bit more about your research interests. Like, what artists uh, or like you know like themes that you're yeah. wanting to study, and and how how do you like what's the next step for you? Um, so my thesis I did Magicien de la Terre at the Centre Pompidou back in 1989. It was a great dissert, or, uh, uh, 
master's thesis, by Thank the way. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I was really, you know, I whenever I first uh, got into the master's program, I, I was really interested in French art, French 20th century uh, exhibition history and things like that. Obviously, um, with my master's in French, that was something that I wanted to continue to pursue. But now, like post-pandemic, post, you know, everything happening, I really am interested in writing about people that are living, people that are making art now, uh, and people that, you know, have voices that haven't always been represented uh, properly um, in the art world. So um, I, I like to write about contemporary women artists, but also artists of color. Um, basically, anybody that's not a straight white male artist is kind of <laughs> what I've been focusing my pitches on and really trying to um, highlight voices that maybe haven't had as much um, critical coverage on them uh, as a way to uplift them. Um, you know, and, and we talk about criticism. Um, I don't usually write about stuff that I don't like. I, I don't, you know, as a writer, I think ethically, I don't want to tear anybody down, but I do want to think more about themes. I want to think about, uh, I really like it, it, you know, the banal, the everyday, the quotidien, these kind of terms, the way that artists might work with something that um, we take for granted, like, I don't know, road signs or books or something and transform it into something a little bit more deeper. Um, and so so I, I would say like my, my interest right now, exhibitions and, um, and some institutional critique to a certain extent, but really focusing on individual artists and what they're contributing to the art world landscape today. Yes, uh, and if you haven't ever actually read any of her work, there's quite a few of them yeah. up on Glass Tire, and they're incredible. Um, so, uh, Caitlin, which what is your most recent one that's up right now? So my most recent one that is up right now is on Emily Peacock, who is from Port Arthur, Texas, so not too yeah, far away. Texas. Yeah, PA, <laughs> not too far away from my hometown of Beaumont. Um, and she's a photographer, but she's also a conceptual artist. So uh, she has two shows up in Houston through December 2021, and the other one at Lawndale is through January 2022. Uh, and it's they're really kind of, she's tackling mental health uh, in a way that it has a lot of humor, it has a lot of heart to it. Um, she's also a mother, and so she has themes of motherhood in her work. But what really attracted me to her stuff is um, her reference to photographic history. So she uses a lot of these like frames and things like that, things you take for granted that you see in 19th century early photography, daguerreotypes and things like that. Um, but she reinterprets them and uses really interesting materials um, as a way to kind of you know, add a little depth to it and, and humor, just really lots of fun stuff. Um, one work in particular at Jonathan Hobson Gallery, it was these plaster casted whoopee cushions, like literal humor. <laughs> awesome. um, so, so that was my most recent article. My next article that I'm going to, you know, maybe give you a preview of that comes out next month is on uh, Dawulu Jabari at Galveston Art artist residency oh, um, nice. and he actually is part I mean Emily too they're both uh, have works in the Museum of Fine Arts Houston's collection yeah um, yeah yeah <laughs> and um, and you know and they both have Houston ties as well so definitely love Houston love everything it's done for me uh, loved how I've been able to grow and um, and I hope to continue to grow yeah nice well thank you so much for the lovely you know background on you um, and 
if you haven't already, like I said, go check out some of her articles on Glass Tire and, you know, follow her on Instagram. Where can we follow you on Instagram? So you can follow me on Instagram at Caitlin, C-A-I-T-L-I-N, <laughs> underscore, duh, D-E, underscore, Texas, T-E-X-A-S. Um, and I also have a Twitter that is Caitlin, underscore, duh, underscore, Texas TX, and I'm sure Tori will share this um, Abs- in the description. Absolutely, of the I will. I'll put this on the the description, and I'm trying to do my best to make sure that all of our um, future episodes are now being like they have like their little um, blog post on the website, so you can find it in those two places, bio and the Art Watch Podcast website. Um, so yeah, I'm so excited to have Caitlin here today. She's a wonderful professor, colleague, and friend, and we are going to talk students, specifically undergraduate students, on how to write a visual analysis essay, what it is, like, you know, what are we even going to talk about? Like, obviously, you know, visual, you know, we're looking at it. We're also, it's called formal analysis, as your syllabi or assignment guidelines might call it, um, but really just kind of getting into what exactly students should be looking for and how they can approach art in a way that's not as intimidating, especially since when you're taking those first art classes, maybe you've never been to a museum before and that's totally okay. I didn't even go to an art museum until 2015 when I graduated high school. Like it was crazy. And I mean, you know, so we're here to break it down for you. Um, But definitely the first thing that you should always, always, always do is please, for the love of all that is good in this world, (laughs) review those assignment guidelines. Read it once, twice, three times. Make sure you know exactly what it is your professor is looking for. Every assignment guidelines is going to be a little bit different, even though formal and visual analysis are all talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, like what what advice do you have for students before they get started? Definitely read the directions and email ASAP, right? Like don't read the directions the day before the assignment is due and send a sad email at 10.30 p.m. Like, oh, I don't know what to do. It's due at 11.59 because that's too late at that point. So read the assignment early. Read it a couple times. If you have any questions email your professor ASAP. Um, if there are other resources, like if you're part of, you know, a, a lot of students join like group me's or WhatsApp groups, like had to have study groups for a course, you might even ask your classmates, hey, I'm not sure, you know, if, if your professor's not responding fast enough, um, you might even talk with your peers, like, hey, what do y'all interpret this assignment as being, um, you know, am I clear on the directions? But always, always, always ask for help if you need it. I know it's hard to ask for help, but it's better to ask for it and, you know, get a sassy response from a professor, which I hope, you know, I never respond sassily, but, you know, there there are professors that do. It's better to do that and then you follow the directions and get a grade on the assignment rather than just assume, right? Because that makes an ass out of you and me. Hey! <laughs> so, that yeah, that's the biggest... Yeah, I agree with Tori, 100%. Directions, make sure you know the directions, make sure you're clear. Um, Sometimes your professors, depending on who they are, they might provide additional resources that will guide, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, we have our resources that will definitely help you with formal analysis, but your professor might even provide those resources. Um, I also, uh, me and Tori were, you know, having our pedagogical discussions before (laughs) we started recording and even thinking about, um, you know, like the type of assignment. You might have a professor that wants you to have a very specific thesis before you go into formal analysis, or you might just have a professor that just wants you to describe to the best of your ability, um, the object that you're doing your analysis on. So definitely directions. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and like, I mean, I have done it in the past where I thought I was pretty clear on the assignment and then I wrote it and the professor gave it back to me and was like, bro, I can't grade this because it's not what, not what the assignment says. And so like, I mean, we've all made the mistake before. So it's better, definitely better to ask for questions. Mm -hmm. And like Caitlin said, do not wait to the last minute. Um, mainly just because usually that week that your assignment is due, sometimes we've got a lot of other things going mm -hmm. on and we, we may just miss your email or not get it to you fast enough. And it has nothing to do with like, oh, we want this student to fail. Like, no, that's not what it is. It's just like, like right now, like, I am teaching, but I am also a student myself. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm really busy too. And I, I may just miss it. Um, so definitely have those group chats. And yeah. I know some of my students do too. And it makes my heart happy that they're getting to know each other in yeah. this digital age. So, and then, you know, the other, the, you know, I, I mentioned post pandemic world, you might have a professor that is still trying to grapple with, you know, transferring all their in-person classes online. Uh, and they may be juggling several different things at the same time. So it's always, always really important. Send an email early. And then if they don't respond, you know, look at the syllabus. If they say their response rate is within 48 hours, if they don't respond within 48 hours, send a follow-up one. Oh, right? yes. Don't like, be because, to do that. you know, and you can even reference like, hey, in your syllabus, it says, you know, you'll you have a 48 response. I haven't heard from you. You can even justify it that way. So, again, to avoid the sassy professor. Um Something else I wanted to bring up, Tori, is a lot of times with my students, and I'm sure you see this too, is you have a lot of students that you've, they've never gone to a museum or they're super intimidated. One, by writing. Writing is hard. It's a process. It takes mm -hmm. practice. It takes time to develop your voice. Um, but they're also just overwhelmed by the visual aspect of it. And so I kind of wanted to bring up this idea that we have all done analysis. Everybody that is listening to this podcast that is trying to learn how to do visual analysis, you have done analysis in some capacity in your life. Um, if you were in the social sciences, for example, you have done some sort of data analysis. Um, if you have been uh, in a science class and you're in a lab and you have your hypothesis and then you have your observations, what are your observations? Your observations are an analysis of what you see. Um, if you're in the humanities and you're doing a, you know, a, a, a literature analysis, right, where you are looking at the elements that, you know, make up a short story and you are dissecting them and using text to support your observations, right? Those are all different ways of doing analysis. And in the visual arts, we're looking at a specific object and we are going to use visual elements in order to describe that object. Uh, so I think the first thing out of the gate is, yes, me and Tori understand writing's hard. Writing is still hard. Like, oh, we've yeah. Been I've, like, fucking it. bombed a, an essay, like, last semester. They straight up said, like, this isn't PhD writing. I cried. I did. And then I picked myself up and I went to the writing center. Yeah. And, and you know what? And I had an experience in the master's program where I had a similar comment. This isn't master's level writing. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if I cried. I think I was, it was an angry cry, if anything. It wasn't like, oh, I'm not good enough. It was like this teacher doesn't know me like that you know it was but you know at the end it made me a better writer to get that feedback yeah. um but writing period is hard um and so the the biggest thing with that is accepting that it's hard but also accepting like your teacher wants to hear your voice i don't want to you know i don't want you to copy paste wikipedia i want to hear your voice describing this because that is invaluable everybody's yeah. individual perspective your invaluable. voice is important and we definitely want to hear it and especially like when we're talking about a visual analysis 
we're going to talk about this specifically, like you're doing a completely separate paper from what we would consider a historical context or a compare and contrast. So only looking at the object that you've either been assigned or that you've chosen. So when we're doing that, we're not going to pull outside sources. Our evidence is strictly based on what you see. Mm -hmm. And whether that's like, you know, if it's a sculpture, maybe it's from antiquity and your head is missing on it or an arm is missing. And you're like, okay, well, this obviously wouldn't have been there before, but we can still do a, you know, a comprehensive visual analysis mm -hmm. and talk about it that way. I want to add to that. You bring up a good point. You are writing about what you see. You might know, like, let's bring up a Renaissance painting, right? That's, you know, your Jesus and, you know, the Virgin Mary holding the little baby, baby Jesus, Jesus right? And it's a triangle composition, <laughs> Raphael, whatever, you know, oh, whoever. I just covered this in my class. Yeah, everybody, you know, everybody has to do Italian Renaissance, right? But, you know, we, if you, you know, tend to church growing up or whatever, you know that's baby Jesus, you know that's Mary. But in a visual analysis, you don't need to talk about who baby Jesus and Mary are. Mm -hmm. You just need to mention, like, I, you know, and, and of course, you know, your teachers, everybody's different. But for me, I don't even want to know their names. I don't even know want to know who they are. I want you to identify them in the bare bones that you can, uh, completely devoid of any sort of interpretation, any sort of context, just what is the object? What do you see? So I'm not going to say, I see baby Jesus and Mary. I'm going to say, I see a woman wearing a, you know, blue shawl with a child sitting on her lap. The child looks to be, you know, a year and a half, two years old, um, wearing a loincloth. And in the background, there's cows or whatever it is. Um, but I don't even want to know, right, in a visual analysis who this is. That's going to come later in your context. Mm -hmm. Something else that she brought up, too, that was a good point, is this is not a critique. Formal analysis is not a critique. I do not care how you feel about Mary and the baby Jesus. <laughs> I do not care how you feel if that's a good artwork or not. You are literally just telling us the facts of the artwork. And the facts of the artwork is going to be in the description of what you see. And then using these formal elements that we're about to bring up as a way to describe what you see in an objective and scientific way as possible. Yeah, and that's a really good thing. You're remaining objective in your visual analysis paper. So it's going to be different when you finally get into that historical context or the cultural, whatever your professor is calling it, compare, contrast, because um, your visual analysis will shift in that. But when you're just doing a regular formal analysis paper, you're only focusing on, on the ob objective, what we're looking at, and how you're going to walk your reader through what you're seeing. Because chances are, when you do this, you know, your, your reader is not going to be looking at what you're seeing. So you want to make sure that uh, you're, you're painting a picture with words. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I use that time. metaphor too. I do, yeah. And it's, it's annoying here. Like, oh yeah, it's a little cliche. We're in art class. Um, and you're painting a picture with words. But that's basically what you're doing. You want to walk your reader through step by step okay so here's this and then you're going to move on to like you're going to describe that you know what's important and then you're going to go on to the next the next portion right um so yes but before we get too ahead of ourselves uh why don't we talk about the elements of art versus the principles of art because they are different even though they're related mm -hmm. elements of art principles of design oh principles of design sorry okay so our elements of art are going to be line, shape, form, value, space, color, and texture. So which one do we want to start with, Caitlin? 
Let's start with color. Oh, right. I love color. It's so nice to look at. So color, it can include, I mean, it can include like specific palettes. If you want to describe something as being neon or muted or earth tones or neutral primary, right? So this is now we're starting to get into like specific art terms, like primary colors, your red, yellow, blue, tertiary colors, which you know, or mixtures of secondary, you know, I'm sorry, yeah. I skipped the secondary, right? Pop is <laughs> tertiary. But you can describe specific palettes like that. You could also describe a lack of color. You can describe, you know, are things monochrome? Um, does it seem like they're using just colors of blacks and grays and something? Um, yeah, and some of the terms you can use are hue, which is, you know, the pure colors of the color wheel. There's value, the light and darkness, a tint, you know, which is where, you know, it's a little bit lighter maybe. And then the shade, which is typically where we talk about when you've added like a really dark color, typically black to that color itself. Um, and so, you know, of course there's saturation, intensity, which you might be familiar with on your phone editing apps. Uh, you know, you can make some crazy uh, pictures with that. And then, uh, yeah, Caitlin already talked about palette, earth tones, pastels, neon. You know, you really wanna get, use those adjectives. Use those adjectives and then apply it, right? Yeah. Like, you know, how is the color being used? Like, is, you know, I'm, I'm thinking most recently I wrote um, about a hot dog show, <laughs> a bunch of paintings on a hot really dogs. Uh, and it was lots of fun to do it. But there was, you know, very specifically looking at his hot dogs, he was using purple. Uh, as as a shadow, I, you know, rather than having like a pure black shadow on on his, you know, the, the weenie cast on the bun, it was a purpley <laughs> shadow, um, or even like a contour, you know, on his bun, like to had to show, you know, the the folds uh, in the bun, like it was more of a you know, like lighter beige color compared to the you know deeper toasted bun color, um, or emphasize something, right? Like you might have a little white highlight of something um mm -hmm. to draw attention to i don't know like one side of the bun uh we're going to use hot dog <laughs> on the hot here. dog <laughs> on the hot dog right um so color is something that is, that you're going to have no matter what your artwork is and i you know just to jump back a second um you're not going to use all of these elements of art and principles of design you're not going to use every single one of them to talk about your artwork but you should be able to use most of them. And color is something that is universal, that no matter what you talk about, you're going to have to bring up the color or lack thereof. Absolutely. And another thing that is going to be, you know, uh, really important is space. How does the artist approach the actual, you know, like thing that we're looking at? So if it, is it two dimensional? How do they create the illusion of space? If it's a three dimensional work, how are they actually utilizing mm -hmm. space? Um, and so this can be the both positive and negative areas around the work or within the work. Um, and you know, like it's, it's gonna change based on what we're looking at. So like if we're talking about a photograph, when we're talking about space, we're also gonna use the term volume because you're looking at this like uh, depth that they're able to provide based on, you know, like it's flat, but we're taking a photograph of a three-dimensional mm -hmm. object, right? Um, and, and you get into space too with, with perspective a little bit, Ooh, which is yes. definitely, you know, like uh, if you're thinking atmospheres or one point perspective, right? So I'm thinking one point perspective where it's a 2D work, but it's trying to imply um, that there is, you know, this illusion of a 3D space. 
what is that? The, the Masacho that's in, you know, that oh, it's the yeah, Jesus. Like and the... it's trying to make it look like, you know, he's way back there in the hallway. But no, that's just, it's an illusion. It's not 3D, right? If we were to go and touch it, we could feel that it's flat. We are not going to go into a tunnel, right? It's Please kind of, don't touch art, though. Uh, you know, <laughs> let's, and maybe even a pop culture example, like Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner, right? And oh, you'd yeah. always paint, you know, a tunnel for the Roadrunner to run through uh, or, like, to trap him, right, so that he would hurt himself. But it was just an illusion of, of that 3D space. I mean, the Roadrunner, right, he always got away, and then the Wile E. Coyote was the one that would, <laughs> you know, run into the 2D space. Um but yeah, no, space, absolutely. Um, and I think, just, you know, to wrap the thinking 3D, you will definitely use space when it comes to sculpture, right? Like the, you know, the, the way that there might be negative space, you might have, you know, like if the legs are cut out a certain way or whatever. And then absolutely in architecture, right? Because that oh, 100%. is, you know, you're, you re related to the space. Yeah, and this def like space is definitely going to go hand in hand with scale, which is the size of the work itself, but also the size of the figures or objects within that work. So if we're looking at, for example, like Michelangelo's David, he's freaking huge, but he, I mean, he's proportional, like mm -hmm. bodily wise, with the exception of his hands, but that's a whole other argument. Mm -hmm. um, but the scale of it is humongous. And so what he's doing with that is like, you need to look at this. This is the most important figure in here because of its scale or size, you might call it. Um, and if you're looking at ancient works, are they using what's called hierarchical scale, mm -hmm. where the most important figure is the biggest in that, uh, whether it's maybe a fresco, a sculpture, a painting. Um, so you're going to think about these things too, as you're, as you're looking at your work of art and how this is really, um, creating the composition, which is the work as a whole. Well, and even going with higher, like this idea of, uh, scale, scale might be used to imply three dimensionality, right? Like, you know, Absolutely. your, your figures in the back are going to be smaller than your figures in the front, not because the figures in the front are more special, but because the figures in front are closer to you. So they're going to appear larger versus the figures that are farther away that are going to appear smaller. Definitely. And I mean, these are things that you want to consider when you're approaching that work. And, you know, we're trying to be like relatively general with this uh, because we don't know what your professor is going to mm -hmm. assign. Heck, I probably don't know what I'm going to assign next semester. Uh, so these are just tools to get you to think about art. And I know I provide my students with like a museum worksheet to take with them if they go to the museum or even if they're just looking at the work of art on their computer. Uh, your uh, professor might have like a digital exhibition for you to see. And so if you, you know, take some of these things and you, and you start thinking about this, it's really going to help you when you actually get to that writing portion. But are there any other things that we want to talk about before we move on? I mean, well, I mean there's a lot of elements. Oh, yeah, there's yeah. so much so, to talk about. So let's see. Let, I think maybe from scales, you mentioned in hierarchical um, that, you know, we, we, we can recognize this in ancient art as a way to, you know, the more important figures are larger. I think the style is important too. Oh yes. Um, as far as styles of the figures or like the style that might be used in an artwork. Um, and this is where you start getting into representational, non-representational, abstract versus figurative, um, things like that. I, I definitely think you can, um, you know, art, figures that might be in more detail, you could argue are representational versus figures that might be more simplified that are abstract. 
And definitely, if we're looking at the style of, or the style of the figures themselves, are they naturalistic or are they realistic? There is a slight difference. So naturalistic refers to what is existing of the natural world, whereas realistic is depicted as it appears in real life. And they're very easy to confuse. I still do it sometimes if I'm writing really quickly and I'm like, oh wait, that's actually realistic or naturalistic, whichever it was. Mm -hmm. So just make sure that when you're using these terms that are relatively close, that you're using the correct one because it's really gonna take your paper to the next level. And it's gonna show us that you are paying attention in class and that you mm -hmm. do know, like, you know, you know what you're talking about for the most part. Like, obviously, you're not an expert, neither are we, but, um, you know, so just kind of think about these things too. And, and even if, you know, we're looking at like ancient Greece, for example, there's a lot of geometric forms in there, especially in early pottery. So there's actually a whole period called geometric period. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can use these uh, things too, even though we might think geometric maybe is more like modern and contemporary. It's actually not. Another thing that's interesting about representational uh, art is, you know, is it idealized? And you Ooh. brought up the ancient mm -hmm. Greeks, you know, and a lot of that ancient Greek art, those people did not exist. That was an ideal that, you know, for people to try to achieve or try to, you know, that that was their ideal of beauty or their ideal of athleticism um, or, or whatever it is. That, you know, was not necessarily a real person that existed, that looked like that, that was ripped, you know, like the Lacoan. Like, Where they let's have say, like 20 million king muscles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you know, something like the Lacoan or I don't know, um, Venus de Milo, like any of those old ancient Roman or Greek statues that are in your uh, survey courses that you talk about, those are going to be ideals. Those are not going to be realistic or naturalistic at all, even though they are representational figurative art. We can recognize, okay, this is a human body, but, you know, you know, does the human body, like you said, are, you know, 20, mu 20 million muscles, like, and everything's, like, flexed at the same time, like, that yeah. is not... Realistic. And like this idealization is going to be common in so many other cultures too. Mm -hmm. Like if we're looking at the ancient classic Maya, for example, all of their figures, even though they're like representing a specific ruler, they're actually incredibly idealized and stylized too. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and you're, you know, you have to look at this, like what is, um, what is the artist trying to get across to the period viewer, you know, like, mm -hmm. how would they have experienced this too? Like, what, what would the eye have been drawn to? And, and that can help you too when you're looking at the style or even the figures or even scale. Right. Let's we're, we're hopping around with these elements, but I think we're having a good time. Um, go, thinking back about color, something else is light and darkness um and and that is something that you know may not necessarily be like you know you have a picture of a sunshine in the corner like with sunglasses on and it's a yellow <laughs> sunshine like that's that's not what we mean by light what we mean by light is you know in within the artwork itself what areas seem to be illuminated like you know more highlighted more visible and then what areas are darker or in shadow or you know is the artist even considering a light source whenever he's depicting his artwork and this is going to be something that we see more with uh baroque artwork oh, absolutely um you know renaissance to a certain extent but definitely in the baroque and that's where you get that fancy chiaroscuro term that everybody loves to use oh, and tenebrism um, gotta love and it tenebrism right like you know great five dollar uh <laughs> sat prep vocabulary <laughs> terms um but this is something that is going to 
that that's going to be important, uh, and especially in painting, I think. But you also can get this type of effect in sculpture, that your artist is intentionally thinking about what types of shadows are going to be cast mm -hmm. uh, by the modeling or by the contours of the sculpture itself, uh, or, or the use of, you know, marble, right? Marble reflects so much light, like a white stone, obviously, is going to reflect more light than something that is, used, you know, made out of granite or made out of um, a darker limestone. Absolutely. And then, um, and in that, like when you're looking at sculptures, um, sometimes you'll actually see the sculpture in its original setting, which is always nice. It's not as common, but you can really see how the light is playing with all of the different uh, forms in the sculpture. So if you have the opportunity, definitely talk about that. But, you know, if you're going to just like, for example, like the Met or even MFAH, uh, where you have all of these different sculptures from antiquity and they, they, you know, they're kind of displayed in a certain way where they are very well lit. So, you know, like you have to kind of pick and choose, does this really apply? And, and that's where, you know, Caitlin was mentioning earlier that uh, not all of these are going to apply to your specific work, mm -hmm. um, but you can still like maybe talk about it just a little. Let's, let's talk about line uh, because I think line is something that, People, you know, it's such a simple concept, right? It's a what a dot in space, like a dot moving in space. I think is like the yeah. most basic <laughs> definition of a line. Uh, and then you know, fun facts about lines, like there's no such thing as a perfect line, right? Like you cannot achieve a 100% perfect straight line. Did you know that? I didn't, and that like it's a me it's so a much. it's an ideal, right? It's an, like a line is a sort of ideal. But we recognize lines, we recognize colors and things like that because of light. Um, but line is something that is such a, I think it's such a taken for granted because there's going to be line in everything. Uh, some of it is going to be very explicit. Like, you know, I'm thinking like Franz Klein, like who was a, uh, yeah, like, painting. like, you know, big old line, Thick like jagged, exactly. Um, where it's very explicit. It could even be like if you look at comics and things like that, there's going to be hatch marks. There's going mm -hmm. to be uh, lines that contain the dialogue or lines that contain, you know, the individual box. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's it as simple as it is, I think it can be kind of tricky to talk about line. Yes, because um, it, it has so many different uh, uses. It could be modeling. It mm -hmm. could be, uh, you know, which I guess is kind of like shading. It could actually imply movement of the entire thing. Mm -hmm. So there might not actually be any lines, but if we're thinking of, you know, like Renaissance compositions, you know, if they're in that triangular, mm -hmm. they're still like the artist is using line to guide your eye and to create exactly. that movement. Um, and so even in like, um, uh, is it, I think it was Giotto's, like, the lamentation, right? You know, he's creating the line quite literally with the hill that, mm -hmm. you know, Christ is, you know, being taken off of the cross. And then you have the angels who are weeping. And uh, there's all this other movement that, that's happening. And he's using the line of the actual composition to move that eye. So there's, there's so many different ways that you can use it. So you definitely want to, like Caitlin said, be careful how you use it. Mm -hmm. And and you brought up a great point about line implying movement. Uh, and movement can be, you know, wh what is movement? How do we interpret movement? We interpret movement whenever there's a sequence of images or there's a or, or even like with your eyeball literally moving uh, things to create a sense of movement. Um, and, and a two-dimensional painting, for example, like, it might be very static. Um, a lot of those older, you know, like medieval paintings, things like that, 
they are very static. A portrait, and to a certain extent, can seem very static. And it's whenever you have other things happening, other little details that cause your eye to dart across the image. Or even, you know, if you're thinking about sculpture, like other details that your eye is attracted to, it can imply movement. It can really make something uh, come alive. It can really actually separate good art from bad art, too, is, is the use of line and the use of implied movement. Definitely. And if you're looking at the progression of, or if you're looking at a certain period, I should say, you know, something in like ancient Egypt, it, it is pretty static if we're just looking at mm -hmm. it. But how are they implying movement? Now, for that culture, it's with the foot being placed forward. And mm -hmm. that is how they implied movement. Even though today we'll look at it and say this is a pretty stiff object. Yeah. But for them, that was movement. And mm -hmm. so, you know, even though when you're doing a visual analysis, obviously we want you to, to disregard most of the historical context, but you can still look at this, like say the artist is implying movement because of the position of maybe their hand gesture or their foot. Um, and so that's how you can still really talk about all of these different things even though you're not supposed to bring in the historical context too and and another example of movement and motion um in like 20th century art would be like in futurism or even like uh, marcel duchamp's like nude descending a staircase oh, yes. or you know like a lot of those like you know if you look at a futurist composition it's intentionally trying to be perceived as being in motion like trying to what is that? The Yakamabala, the little dog walking, right? Or, oh, yeah. or you know, a bicycle um, being, you know, ridden. Um, and, and there's a way that, you know, the little dog walking, you see its legs in different, you know, positions in time, but all superimposed in the same image to imply movement. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we hit on most of these, yeah. actually. Well, one little fun bullet point on here is if you're thinking about sculpture, you're going to have, like, there's such thing as kinetic sculpture that automatically, Ooh, yes, they actually know, move yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, they're, uh, for example, in, like, some of the Carlos Cruz Diaz works, I think, and then especially Gago, like, her works, mm -hmm. you know, she's got wire hanging in different spots that, you know, if you look closely enough, they actually are moving, but when you're looking at them from different angles it's almost like they are moving even mm -hmm. though they're completely still so there's different ways you can talk about this in sculpture versus painting or photography but that was a really great yeah. and like uh just gonna plug the i guess yeah. new kinder building free advertising for mfaa yeah uh it's a wonderful building so if you are in the houston area definitely go check it out and you can see some wonderful uh latin american works of art and especially since Hey, this is a Latin American podcast, yeah. so check out that awesome Latin American art and Chicanx art. So another element of art that I think th might be the easiest one is texture. Ooh, um, I love texture. And yeah, I, I think it, it's it's the easiest because we can all recognize it. And even if, I mean, obviously don't touch the artwork, right? But how does it look? Does it look soft? Does it look smooth? Is it... Uh, wrinkled is it you know I'm thinking like Auguste Rodin like is it sinewy right like you can see the muscles you can see the little veins coming out or even like on Van Gogh where the painting is just the paint is just like thick and it's just like plastered on mm -hmm. there you know and it's just like so like you can see it so there's a little bit of a relief to it yeah um, or you know in like a fresco painting like for example um, like the big three in Mexico City or even I think they have some in California you know it's you know it's a smooth surface, right? But mm -hmm. are they implying texture with certain things? Yeah. Or is it, or they intend for it to be entirely smooth? So 
just because it's a two-dimensional piece or like mm -hmm. a fresco like and there might not actually be physical texture is there like a visual texture mm -hmm. to it too so that's that's another way you can think about texture i um me being, you know, and I, I'm interested in Western art. I'm sorry for the Chicanx, Latinx podcast. <laughs> but thinking more specifically about, like, Baroque art and some of those, like, you know, like Diego Velasquez and I'm thinking Rubens and I'm thinking, um, I, I mean, Renaissance is Titian. I think Titian is just beautiful, beautiful work. And so focusing on Titian for a second, texture can also be like, you know, these portraits that you have of like guys wearing their suit of armor, you know, these elite people wearing their suits of armor and the way that the painter is able to make that armor shine and have like a gleam to it or these rich you know because it was rich people that were commissioning these portraits Absolutely. or capturing in oil paints like the luxuriousness of these velour fabrics Ooh, or the these... velvet and the furs so you can see that a lot on uh, the british uh royal portraits like mm -hmm. they have like the it's ermine right yeah uh, and so like how does the artist capture like the softness of the fur and how are they able to apply this to a two-dimensional work so even mm -hmm. though the surface is very smooth in all those renaissance and baroque paintings they're still able to capture delicate natures of this um and yeah i think i think there's so many wonderful things mm -hmm. about visual analysis um and with texture too like texture is kind of like an umbrella term right because within texture you can use line you can use color you can use the use of light and dark or impasto or um brush stroke as a way to describe the way that texture is created right so you know texture is the bigger concept but within that concept you can break it down to these simpler elements sorry my dog is throwing a temper tantrum Aww. it's okay he's mad i think because like cleo is looking at him or something i don't know this dog he gets mad if you look at him. I gave him a kiss goodnight the other night, and he straight up left my bed. No. He was he's, like, fuck you. He's just, he's just jealous. He wants to be the next guest on the podcast. He's always. Um, but yeah, and speaking of texture, right? Your dog has texture. And his texture, we can identify, you know, by literally touching him. But just looking at him, uh, you know, the way that the the light reflects off his coat, we can tell that there's this kind of a coarser texture on the body and then there's a softer texture on his head and around his ears Ooh, and, and his it's belly too and belly right yeah. and we know this from you know the way that the light falls on him and even the color uh of his fur yes and yeah, oh, yeah, we're visually analyzing yeah. my dog good job odin you made it on the podcast again i think the last one that we can maybe talk about maybe is like this this idea of a narrative or time oh yeah um so like in visual analysis like it can get a little bit tricky when you're talking about narrative because you want to tell the reader like what's happening and i'm okay like if my students like if they i know caitlin had said like um she doesn't really want them to identify like the virgin mary or uh the infant Christ, like by name, like I'm okay with that. Like if it's just gonna, if it's easier for you, but don't get into like their background story, who yeah. they are, all their history, blah, blah, blah. Like it's fine if you identify them. I don't really care. But you know, when you're talking about a narrative, you can say, um, for example, um, in a lot of them, Christ, even if he's infant, he has like the blessing hands and he's, you know, we might, Maybe you're from that culture, maybe you're not, or just from the background history, background that you have in class, which I hope you do, because, you know, you're paying attention and taking mm. wonderful notes. I, I know you all are. Um, so you know that he's blessing the other figures 
and or he's maybe with this hand gesture you could say instead he's alluding to movement and um or the artist is is creating the illusion of movement by how his hand is gestured or where he's looking or where he's pointing or things like that and like maybe he's pointing to um for example in uh the tribute money right it's Visaccio, right mm-hmm. so like you have i think it's christ pointing to the river and we see another thing so you can say he's pointing to the river and this is what's happening and then here he's gesturing this way and then this is what's happening you don't have to get into all of the the background you can mm-hmm. just use it by saying like maybe they're the subject is pointing a certain way or the um gosh what else maybe there's like different objects yeah i also think like it's this this idea of narrative maybe um can be kind of confusing for students because they they like you said they want to write a background narrative about the scene that's happening where you don't need it so i'm going to bring up caravaggio and the the doubting thomas really quick and and we're rolling all right. Yeah. So another thing I want to add, talking about narrative, is is it's not always you know I agree with your your statement. Like you don't want to go into the backstory of something. It's more about what is the moment in time that is happening in that artwork. So yes. bringing up Caravaggio because this is a fun one. Uh, the incredulity of Saint Thomas or the doubting Thomas. Some people call it. You know, it's it's the moment where Thomas is actually touching, has his fingers in the wound of Christ, and so that would be something to mention. You know, you have. figure in the foreground um, wearing a red cloak whose hand is actually you know touching the wounds of the figure on the left side which Tori in her class you can identify as Jesus in my class I just would rather you identify a figure Um, and it's that moment right in the narrative uh, that the 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 artist is depicting um, versus, you know, like two seconds before, like, you know, maybe the hand, you know, the finger didn't quite reach the wound of Jesus, right? That would be something that would be noteworthy. Um, but the moment that is being captured. <laughs> we skipped over a couple of um, bigger picture things. I think oh, like gosh. this is good to talk about the, the little picture, right? But big mm-hmm. picture aspects, you know, thinking about composition, thinking oh, about yes. the actual material and media used, thinking about the actual technique. These are some of these bigger picture descriptors, I think. Um, and then within, you know, once you have that description laid out, considering the technique, considering the materials used, considering the name of the maker and, mm-hmm. you know, the year it was done. Um, you know, composition is where you're going to do the bigger picture. And then all these elements, line, color, technique, dimensionality, those are all the little picture aspects that are going to help you go into as much detail as possible about these bigger uh, picture aspects. Definitely. And it's, I find that when we do finally jump into that essay, I find it's easier for students to kind of, in your introduction, what's the big picture, right? Mm-hmm. What What is it? Quickly describe it. Like, even if it's just a, we see, you know, we see a woman holding her child, blah, 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 you know. It's done in oil paint, uh, the, you know, Caravaggio, Raphael's the artist. Um, this is the date that it was made. You would put date in parentheses, by mm-hmm. the way, um, and... You might also consider how does it look in 2021, you know? Like if it's something that's older, does does it appear that the artwork, you know, if you're looking at a fresco, if you're looking at 
and a sculpture from antiquity, does it look like it's in the same prime condition that it was whenever it was made or, you know, has other things taken care of it? Yeah, and you can definitely nod to, like, if there's an aspect that's missing or, like, it's, it's very clear that it's missing. So you want to let your reader know that. And you can do all of this in the intro because it's, it's mainly just a, a brief, a very, mm-hmm. very brief overview of what you're of what you're doing and then the rest of your essay should be like where you pull out the meat of what it is mm-hmm. you're looking at now there's a couple different ways that you can get to the writing portion um are we good to yeah 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 okay so i personally am a huge proponent of students sketching what they see mm-hmm. even though you might not be an artist that's okay i find that what it does is it really encourages you to slow down and think about what you're looking at because you have to consider like, okay, well, maybe there's this detail over here that I would have missed if I had just looked at it really quickly, right? And so, you know, if you if you do go to a museum or gallery, you can only take pencils. Mm-hmm. Uh, just keep that in mind. Don't take a ballpoint pen or a pen of any kind. So just make sure you're using a pencil. And to, to, to go on that, you know, obviously we all have our smartphones and we can take pictures. And that that's important, right? You're going to visit the museum. Usually for these assignments, they want you to go see the artwork in person versus just online. Online is okay. It's a great um, starting point, but it makes a difference to actually go be there physically, feel the artwork, see it, you know, with, with your body in the space. Definitely. And I feel like a good example of that is if we're going to jump back to like my, the episode on Kualikwe, right? So whenever I was writing about her before I had even gone to Mexico City, I thought that the feathers on her legs were maybe snakes. And it turns out once I got there that they're very well-defined feathers. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you miss certain things when you're only looking at things online. And so that's why it's so important for us to know that you are going to the museum mm-hmm. um, and you're actually sitting with the object and really thinking about what it is you're seeing. Because like Caitlin said, you can miss so many different details. And, and you really do get a sense of, of what the object is like and how it makes you feel, even though this isn't an essay about how you feel. Yeah. Um, but you use that feeling to, okay, well, I'm feeling this because my eye was drawn to this element or this aspect of the work of art. And I don't want to discourage students to take pictures, right? Because that is an important tool too. But when you take your pictures, don't just take one of the whole thing. Take several. Take, you know, like maybe focus on tiers of the artwork or focus on levels of the artwork or focus on specific details. Um, If you're, I'm I'm thinking of, uh, okay, let's say that, let's bring up St. Thomas again because I had, had this picture up. You know, like bringing up, like taking a picture of the actual finger, you know, penetrating the wound of Jesus. Like that might be an interesting picture to refer to later when writing about it. So I, I, be, I definitely believe, you know, I also have a journalism background. You want to take as many pictures as possible. You want to document everything uh, as much as possible. And something else that might be helpful too is considering how it's displayed in the space. Um, in a formal analysis, obviously, you know, the, 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 the most important thing is what you actually see in the artwork. But it might also be helpful to think about how is it being displayed. Um, at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, for example, a lot of their Gothic Italian altarpieces, they're, they're being displayed in a room that has a very neutral color that has a skylight mm-hmm. uh, and, and dim light everywhere else, but most of the light's coming from the sun. And that's kind of how the original, you know, people that lived during that time that those were made, that's 
kind of how they would have seen them. Yeah, and and most museums do their best to try and, in whatever way they can, to sort Mm -hmm. of mimic that. But obviously, you know, Mm -hmm. museums are not perfect by any means. And if you have an encyclopedic museum like the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, the Metropolitan Museum of Art... There's so many others, and I mean, it gets to a point where they just kind of jam them all in into one gallery. Uh, the Met definitely has that. Um, and so, like, if if that process of thinking doesn't work for your object specifically, that's okay. There are instances, like some of the altarpieces, like Caitlin was saying, they, they do their best to really sort of replicate the lighting or mm-hmm. um, the level that it would have been yeah. at. And, and that's something else that you can think about, too. So why don't we talk about principles of design? So we, we spent all this time talking about elements of art, and this that's super important. Um, they're not separate from principles of design. Principles of design is going to help you go even further in depth about the elements of art. Um, so, I mean, like, I mean, we can even start with thinking about balance, uh, symmetry, um, you know, do things appear, um, you know, the same on both sides or are they asymmetric? Is there a certain emphasis on something and how does the artist do that? Do mm-hmm. they provide an emphasis based on, you, this is where you can start thinking back to scale mm-hmm. or color, even texture. Or light. Yes, light too. And so the principles of art are a little bit trickier, I've noticed, for students to incorporate mm-hmm. because... They are kind of broad, and mm-hmm. you can use them to certain things, like to certain elements. But this is where we really want you to think about how the artist is applying balance to it, mm-hmm. how they are applying emphasis. And that's where you can really talk about that in the elements that you're looking at. So mm-hmm. like for line, for example, what makes it important? Is it because the artist is using this to create balance? Are they using it to create um a gradation mm-hmm. right um so this is where you can really think of that and like movement can also be part of this too is looking back to the gesture what is what are they doing how are they creating movement is it the actual physical movement is it the movement of your eye mm-hmm. um, and this is where you can start to apply this to the rest of your visual analysis i think uh you know another principle of design that is probably the easiest one uh, besides balance, besides emphasis, is is repetition or the use of pattern. Um, in ancient art, we've kind of you know you you brought up the um, example of you know the use of geometric forms in Greek pottery, um, but even thinking more recently, like Native American rugs uh, oh, yes. and carpets, and yeah, you know, like the. Um, the Navajo. The Navajo were expert weavers, and a lot of them, you know, used very, very similar, very geometric designs that were re- repeated over and over again. Um, at the Stark Museum of Art in Orange, so shout out to Stark Museum of Art, they have a wonderful collection of Navajo rugs and blankets, um, and a lot of, I mean, and it's a variety of stuff. You know, you have your kind of God's eye, mm-hmm. you know, shape that it's that diamond shape that's repeated over and over again. But there's also some that are more figurative um, that, that feature like feathers and the feather motif is repeated in different yes, capacities. I, I know that I don't think you're talking about feather work specifically, mm-hmm. are you? Uh, not ne- not necessarily, but if you're going to talk about yeah, like Peru was, like, yeah, and bring that up, yeah, <laughs> like Peruvian featherworks. Oh my gosh, they're incredible. Like, unfortunately, we don't have any surviving examples from like the Mesoamerican region because of the climate. But 
wow, Peru has some fantastic things and they're able to create these beautiful geometric forms and even mm -hmm. some representational forms. Mm -hmm. I know at uh, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, they have a feather work. I think it's a shield. Um, I can't remember specifically, but they have little llamas on them and they're yeah. so cute. I mean, obviously, you know, they they served an actual purpose, but, yeah. um, you know, they're, they're able to achieve like all these different things with materials that, you know, you don't see in the West mm -hmm. or the, the very broad, you know, like problematic term, the West. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, oh man, I, I, I love talking about it. <laughs> so let's talk about some of these harder terms, uh, like and that are a little bit more abstract, right? I think like the, the concept of unity or harmony and rhythm yeah. um, are all kind of like, okay, I'm, I don't remember signing up for a music appreciation class. Like, <laughs> what are y'all throwing at us? Um, yeah. And so when we're looking at harmony and even and rhythm to a certain degree, it's it's really thinking about the use of repetition and subtle changes. Mm -hmm. And so what elements does the artist use to create harmony and mm -hmm. to create rhythm? Um, it might be line. Yeah. It might be the composition. Um, I mean, like, especially like rhythm. When I think of rhythm, um, I think like maybe Stuart Davis, early 20th century, uh, being really influenced by jazz uh, and trying to capture, you know, a city, like, you know, a modern city as you're living and breathing um, walking the streets. So like, you know, the rhythm that he creates there, it might be, you know, like, um, you know, uh, you might see a train, uh, you know, it's just this kind of like lots of moving parts, uh, that I, that I would say Definitely. creates And even rhythm. like in the works of Kandinsky and, and, uh, Clint, no, Klimt, sorry, I get ever since I am like a huge Hilma, Hilda Klimt fan, I love her and I'm like, ah, who cares about it's Klimt. No, okay. No. Well, uh, real fast, I have a fun story. I went to an exhibition at the Louisiana Museum in Copenhagen, or north of Copenhagen, and I thought it was going to be a Gustav Klimt exhibit back in 2014, but it was a Hilda Alf Klimt exhibit. Uh, and so, like, whenever, you know, she came big in the U.S., I was all like, oh, yeah, I saw her work in Europe, you know, <laughs> back in 2014. Um, but the point being, you know, this, this, this idea of... Of rhythm, it, it does, it's not going to be music necessarily. It's going to be the way that all the different elements that are happening in an artwork are working together or maybe not working together. Maybe there isn't unity. Maybe there isn't harmony. Maybe there's things that seem more disjointed. And is that um, intentional? Yeah. Chances are it is. Um, especially as we get into the more modern and contemporary periods, mm -hmm. uh, there's, this, there's this desire to break away. And so... Uh, even though, again, like we don't want you to talk about the context when you're looking at this, but there's a reason for it. And like, if there isn't the, if there isn't rhythm, if there isn't harmony, if there isn't even balance, right? The artist is likely doing that intentionally. And so this is again where you can pull in, like, how are they doing this? Are they using texture? Are they using a, so you know lighting or or um, space even mm -hmm. to create this disjoint? of or sorry this disjointedness <laughs> yes thank you <laughs> <laughs> um i think we've kind of ran through everything um and i know it's very cut and dry it was a lot of stuff i you know when i'm in the classroom i'm always like i appreciate you guys and making it through that let's actually go into an example let's let's play Absolutely. let's um you know me and tori since she is uh, a latinx focused 
podcast, and we've been talking terribly about all these Western <laughs> art, um, let's bring up let's bring up Frida Kahlo, right? Because Frida yes. Kahlo is is one of the most popular uh, artists today. She wasn't necessarily that popular in her lifetime, but you know she's kind of had a reckoning, a reemergence in the past couple of decades. Um, and so the reason why we're cho- choosing uh, Frida Kahlo's work is because one, she is so popular, and our our goal is to have this uh, episode and like the other mini episodes that I've got planned after this to really serve um, students and to serve teachers and professors so that way this can be used in the classroom, which, you know, I didn't think about that. I've been swearing a lot. I'll probably cut that out. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Um, Bad habit. Uh, But so, yeah, Frida Kahlo is a pretty well-known, and this way it's like if you haven't actually seen the work, you kind of have like that, like, oh, I know what she looks like, right? And so we are going to be looking at the painting by hers called The Two Fridas. And so... um, Caitlin, where should we start? So why don't we start with like the label information? So, you know, it's called The Two Fridas, 1939 by Frida Kahlo. Uh, It is oil on canvas. Uh, It is an oil on canvas. Do we have a size for it? Uh, Yes, 68.3 inches by 68 inches. Or if you want to go into centimeters, it's 173 and a half centimeters by 173 centimeters. Okay, so, so this is huge. This is almost six feet by six feet. It's it's a pretty big painting, yeah. Uh, so from just that basic information that we're working with, that label information that we're working with, we're already going to have an idea of scale, what it's going to look like compared to us, uh, how big the how big more or less the figures are going to be even if you don't get to see this in real life i i saw it at the dallas museum of art but i don't think that it's that's its home um, no the home is museo de arte moderno in mexico city okay. cool um and so but i know that i think they had this painting uh it was in the paint the revolution mm-hmm. that's probably why you saw it at dallas okay i think i saw this one at mfah along with like a bunch of works by Orozco and Siqueiros and okay. so many other wonderful artists. Um, and I think this one was there too. Okay. Um, so it's, it's a big, it's a huge painting. So immediately from that tombstone information that we pulled from the label, we get an idea of the scale. We have an idea of maybe more or less what um, the texture that might be created from the media that she uses, from that oil paint that she uses. Um, and, and yeah, that puts us at a good spot. So, so this is like slightly larger than life because I am 5'8", which makes me like, I think that's 65 inches, right, tall? Something like that. But, um, so you can kind of get into scale. I don't know how tall Frida Kahlo was, but this is, eh, it's, it's, it's a little bit maybe larger than life. Yeah. And it's funny because I, when I looked up this image, there's a picture of Frida by it uh, in 1947, and it looks kind of like she could be as big as the as the oh, figure. Okay. So cool. like that could That's be, nice. yeah. yeah, that might be a good place. So let's briefly just describe the image that we're seeing because you know you're our podcast listeners, you're listening, you're not looking at this unless you Googled it. So we have two figures um, that we can identify as Frida. Uh, if we want to, because of the title itself, and then, you know, the little bit you might know about Frida's, she was the subject of all of her works. Yeah. So we have two Frida's. They are sitting side by side on a bench together. One is wearing a white, um, more traditional looking outfit, and the one on the right is wearing um, more of maybe a contemporary outfit. Um, we see that there are exposed hearts. Um, the figure on the left has a hole. 
a heart-shaped hole where her anatomically shaped heart would be. Mm-hmm. And then the one on the right actually has that heart and there's like a vein or an artery yeah, or something. Yeah, I think it's an artery and... Connecting them. And they're also connected. They're holding hands too. Yeah. Um, and so on the, the Frida that has the white dress, she's got, uh, she's holding in her other hand a pair of scissors and it's cutting on one of those arteries and we see blood dripping down her dress. And so mm-hmm. there's a small pool of blood probably around her knees and it looks like there might be some below, but it's, it's a little hard to tell from this image yeah. whether that's powder well, work on the dress. Yeah, exactly. It's both or... blood and then, you know, the blood kind of leads your eyes to look at the pattern on the dress, which is these, you know, red and yellow like and orange flowers or leaves or, or something like that. Um, but I, I think you bring up a good point about these arteries and these ventricles. That's a line that is directing mm-hmm. our eyes to the scissors. That's directing our eyes to the exposed heart on the Frida on the right. Yeah, and like some of these veins or um, arteries, sorry, they're wrapping around the Frida with the blue dress or blue and green dress, I should say. They're mm-hmm. wrapping around her other free arm, and she's holding something in her hand. I can't quite tell what it is. I know. See, this is why this is a great example of why you need to you go, go see, see it in, in, in person. real life. Um, and so, uh, I feel like this is you know it, it speaks to an image doesn't always have the best quality. Um, and it could be due to licensing reasons. This is just a little bit background on, on, um, the world of art. Uh, it could be due to licensing reasons, copyright, whatever, and, or just maybe there's really not any good photographs of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is why, like, if you do have that museum visit, uh, assignment for your visual analysis, why you should go see it in person and why it's so important to see it in person, because Obviously, right now, like, we're doing our best to do a visual analysis for you, but we're probably missing some details because we can't see it in person. What's interesting, because I just wikipedia it, right? <laughs> Not a reliable source, but for, for the sake of this podcast. And apparently it's supposed to be a tiny photo of Diego Rivera in her right hand. Like, I guess, ah, what is that, okay. a retablo? What are those called? Or, oh, are we, like, um... Uh, I know what you're talking about. They're like the little, like, you put them in, like, a locket kind of deal, but yeah. they're not, it's, that's, it's not a locket. Um, so yeah, so going back to our, our analysis, let's talk, let's, let's talk, let's bring up light and dark. Um, so the two Fridas, the one on the left is pretty much in light. And then the one on the right seems to have a shadow cast on her face. Um, her skin, you know, and, and I can make that argument because her skin is a little bit darker, which is the effect of a shadow being cast Mm -hmm. on it. We can also look around the space, and it's an imagined space, I imagine, right? She was surrealist, so um, she wasn't yeah, always... kind of looks like clouds. Uh, there's But like, there's storm clouds. Yeah, they are. And, you know, it gives the, like, feeling of it being not necessarily a happy scene. Um, yeah. So, like, you can think of that, too, and, like, um, how how the is effect. the artist using color to mm-hmm. convey emotion? Mm-hmm. All right, so what else? Texture. Let's talk about texture. Um, so, you know, clothing, I think, is always going to be a easy spot, like, to figure out texture. But then, of course, within the larger scene, you're going to get texture as well. Mm-hmm. So, like, looking at her clothing, um, this isn't a velvet. This isn't a silk or satin. It seems to be cotton Yeah. Um, because of the matte color, uh, or rather the matte effect 
Um, we can also talk about the texture of the outfit on the left where she has all this lace detail. Yeah, it's like on her, it's, it's around her bust upwards to her neck and it's creating like this almost like a turtleneck right mm-hmm. and it, there's this uh beautiful like uh almost like um gosh what do you call it lace it's embroidery, embroidery. Or... yeah yes, embroidery and then on her shoulders uh and her uh arms like her upper arms Has there's like, like this pleating. poofy like yeah. pleated uh, fabric and it's creating like this volume to the mm-hmm. to the to the uh, dress itself. And what makes those pleats? How can we recognize those as pleats? Shadows, shadows, and lines. Yes, uh, I think you know. And in in the the Frida on the right, we see very similarly. Like we can see these lines that are repeated. Right, repetition lines repeated to create a pleated effect on the bottom of her skirt on the figure on the right. And you can even see on that figure on the right too. There's it looks like there's some lace work to mm-hmm. it and she's paying attention to those details in the fabric itself and and another reason why we know it's just not like you know a stiff straight standing figure is because she's using what's called modeling around mm-hmm. her body and she's you know using this in conjunction with that fabric to really create form mm-hmm. and the, the human figure itself you can even break it down further if you're thinking about background versus foreground what's closer to you uh, and the effect that, you know, like how she is making her figures like they're seated and the way that the knees look like they're closer to you than the body, right? Like naturally when you're sitting down, right, and you have your legs folded in front of you, um, if somebody was to take a picture of you straight on, the knees are going to be closer to that lens, right? And so yes. she does a really good job of making the bottom parts of those skirts where the knees bend look closer to the viewer by the use of using warmer colors versus the other Fridas that are, you know, more in the back that aren't as emphasized, aren't as, you know, not maybe not emphasized isn't the word because that's an element, but (laughs) that aren't as prominent. Yeah, and what this technique is called is actually foreshortening. And so it's creating that visual perspective, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you'll see this photography does this so well because I mean it's it's quite literally capturing what the eye is seeing and and what she's doing here of course this is you know around the time photography is becoming very popular Mm -hmm. as an art form she's you know she's relying on the uh studio tropes on how to do this in a painting right and so this is how she's doing that and uh Let's see, what else can we talk about in this work? Oh, her her facial expressions mm-hmm. too. The one on the, like they're both looking directly at the audience. And, you know, she's got her her uh, characteristic, you know, red lips. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's got her wonderful unibrow. And on both of the Fridas, the hair is pulled up. Now, mm-hmm. interestingly though, the Frida on the left has a little bit different of a hair design than the yeah. Frida on the right. So the one on the left, it seems like it's more like different, like puffy bun braids, whereas the one on the right, it looks like it's more of a traditional like Mexican braid that you would mm-hmm. see in a lot of like, uh, they, they call them at this period peasants. I can't think of a different word to say other than that. Um, but it's like a certain Maybe type like of... like the equivalent of a working class. Yeah, or, yeah. Um... Like that's type of braid and obviously like we know we i know this just because mm-hmm. like of my background related to this but um you could say like there's a different design to the braid exactly instead. you know and and just to speak to that like even 
you know, it, it's all about what you see. Even me, I, you know, I noticed it was different hairstyles. I didn't necessarily have the language for it or, or the knowledge uh, historically of, you know, where these hairstyles emerged from. But that's something that you should be able to identify with close looking. Um, that there are two different hairstyles. The one on the left even looks like it has some sort of clip or something in it. Yeah, it looks um, like it, it might, yeah. Uh, and the one, the one on, you know, the, just generally speaking, the Frida on the left looks more formal than the Frida on the right, I think would be a fair. And it's it's likely due to the attire. So, like, mm-hmm. the, the one on the left, you know, there's this, you know, like, going back to that, that like, turtleneck almost. Mm-hmm. And so it's, like, the the material and the coloring itself makes it look a little bit more, I don't want to say important, but fancier maybe. <laughs> you might want to, you know, mm-hmm. use the thesaurus for that. But uh, I, I always have my thesaurus.com pulled up when I'm writing papers. Um, and so whereas the, it, sorry, it's a more designed dress. It's a more ornate dress. Mm-hmm. Whereas the one on the left, it's, it's a little bit simpler. There's a little bit of, of like line to it. It's got um, yellow uh, highlights in it. So like mm-hmm. there's this band work. Whereas, you know, it's the, the shirt itself is actually blue. And then the skirt of, of uh, her outfit is, you know, this sort of simple, like, army green. And then we can see, I guess this would be a, maybe a petticoat uh, underneath. It, that's where we see that little bit of a white band and the lace on the Frida on the right. So mm-hmm. the design of the dresses, too, is important because it might be telling us something about, like, the personalities mm-hmm. or what is, you know, like the differences between them. Yeah. And I, and I think like, you know, there's, let's take a vague term like repetition, right? Uh, that's vague. It just means something that's repeated more than once. You could argue that there's obviously repetition in the figure. We have two of the, a mirror figure basically, right? With some subtle differences that you'll get in the compare and contrast. We have repetition of this anatomical heart shape. The one on the left has a hole. Oh. So okay, I'll, we're good. We're, okay. we're on. So um, I want to bring up this element of repetition, for example, that it can be a big picture element or it can also be a little picture element. So this idea of repetition, like little picture element, would be the repetition of the use of line to create the pleats and the skirt and the, her um, top on the left. The repetition of a pattern, like in the skirt on the left or in the lace and the bodice on the left. Um, but it could also be, sorry about my dog interrupting us, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, th- this idea of repetition, right. And the way that it can be used to help you with the little picture versus big picture. So obviously big picture is we have a figure that is repeated twice. We have this anatomical heart shape that is repeated. We have the repetition of this kind of pattern, uh, uh, excuse me, the, the cloud pattern in the back that has this stormy, gloomy, you know, turbulent feel Mm -hmm. to it. Um, So I think, you know, with the elements within the elements, you can break it down into different principles of design. Um, You can think big picture, you can think little picture, and it's going to be, you know, this is, these are objective elements, but the way you describe it is going to be subjective. The, what you focus on, what stands out to you is your subjective experience, but you're going to talk about objectively, what are those elements and principles of design you see? Absolutely. And like the nice thing about visual analysis is just because you focus on one thing doesn't mean like maybe your friend or classmate is going to focus on another um, or the same thing, I should say. 
And so, yeah, I mean, like, we did a pretty quick visual analysis of the two Fridas. Obviously, you know, like, in your paper, you're going to want to take your time. Um, I know, like, for mine, I usually have a three-page minimum. Um, and so, like, there's definitely tons and tons of things you can talk about. And I'll take three pages to do that. So, um, yeah, so I think a, a nice way we can wrap up is sort of what we look at on mm -hmm. the teaching and grading side of it. So, like, we've both worked as graders. Um, Caitlin is obviously a wonderful professor, and I'm in my first Aww. semester of teaching on, on my own. Like, I feel like I was like, Fr be free, little birdie yeah. fly. <laughs> um, yeah, so Caitlin, what do you look for? So what I look for is, I, you know, that scientific fact. I want the fact of the artwork. Um, I don't, you know, if I see somebody start writing about, um, you know, a backstory or, you know, analyzing the historical context and things like that or doing research on the artist or things like that, that's a red flag to me that they did not read the assignment um, and that, you know, it's wrong and they're going to fail the assignment. Um, so what I look for specifically is just the concrete fact of the artwork um, and that a student is trying to the best of their ability to write about the most, you know, organizing their work from talking about the most important details, the most, you know, salient things that pop out to maybe less important things, talking about the most important things, relating them to the less important things, talking about the most important thing and maybe relating it to parts, you know, smaller parts of the artwork. But a red flag for me is not following the directions, not giving me a formal analysis, and then I start reading it and I see all these big words and I'm like, wait a second, let me copy paste this, put it in my Google search, and I see that it's plagiarized. So, you know, that's always no bueno. But, um, but you know, with the, with the formal analysis, it's really, you're, you're a detective, you're a scientist, you're really mm -hmm. trying to, you know, pull out the fact of the artwork. What about yeah. you? Um, I mean, one of the things that, all right, back to it. So the things that I look for, are you using the vocabulary that we have talked about in class? Now, if you're, like Caitlin said, if you're pulling stuff that we haven't even covered in class, chances are I'm like, how the hell did you come up with this? Mm -hmm. And so this is just gonna be like, all right, I'm gonna go compare yours, maybe to the object label or to another student's paper who was also maybe doing something similar. And so, um, yeah, those are, those are big red flags to me. I personally like for my students, especially like if maybe they're new to writing about art or just new writing at the college level, what are the three most important things? And then create sort of like a thesis statement. Mm -hmm. um, every professor is different. Sometimes they just want you to walk step by step what it is you're seeing. Mm -hmm. I personally want my students to sort of think about how they're connecting and so how they're connecting these elements or principles mm -hmm. and that's what i want them to focus on too often I, like i just finished a round of grading and my students were going off on random tangents about mm -hmm. something that wasn't even related to the visual and so it's like okay yeah like you didn't read the assignment guidelines maybe they're plagiarizing um and like when you're doing a visual analysis paper you really shouldn't have to cite anything mm -mm. so that's the the main point like we're only we only want to know what you're seeing yeah and that is what you should be doing like if you happen to reference something from the museum label absolutely cite it but there shouldn't be any outside research to this mm -mm. you shouldn't be like creating the historical context to this work um i want to see i, I want to read what you're seeing mm -hmm. and what how, how you're grappling with the artist technique 
and what's the most important like elements and principles of this, right? And that's that's what I'm looking for. Um, and I, I mean, I put all of this into a rubric for my students. Um, if your professor doesn't, email them. Um, and just ask them, like, maybe you're confused. Like, I'm not really sure what to focus on. Mm -hmm. Just ask them. We want to hear from you. I have, I'm, I feel like I beg my students to come to office hours. Like, guys, like, you know, let me help you. I want yeah. you to pass my class. I want you to succeed. Exactly. And, and you know, this is one resource of thousands out there on formal analysis. Oh my gosh, there's so many. Smart History is a fantastic resource. Um, they have a little 10 minute video, I think, and they use that Raphael, uh, oh, yeah, I, you know, and, that and that's, that's what's fresh on my mind. Um, but also, um, you know, I just, just the guide that we're, you know, what we use to talk about those specific elements. Um, I know that I can share with Tori and she can share with y'all some different links, um, yes, I'll to have the Getty, the uh, that has a couple of, um, you know, sources on like, you know, lesson plans actually that talk about formal analysis, but then the Hamilton College Art History Department has a really uh, cool PDF that works really well. Um, and maybe we can even share our formal analysis guide um, yeah, as um, a Google Doc for anybody to look at. Absolutely. And I have a worksheet that I gave my students. Um, I know there's so many different types of learners out there, like how you learn is really important. So I tried to, I provided a video for maybe people who were like need that auditory co uh, component. Um, I gave them a worksheet that kind of like guides them through how to do the visual analysis like in the museum and you can like sort of write about it. So, and they, they give you these guides questions on how to do it and I will put all of this up on the the art watch podcast website and so once I get it all gathered I'm hopefully gonna have that up on the website by the end of next week but I'm gonna be honest it's a crazy week so mm. it might it might take another week or two um, for it to happen but it will be available to you and if it's not available quickly enough you can always shoot me an email um, and yeah so uh, are there any other things we want to, you know, wrap up before we finish on visual analysis? Uh, I th maybe, you know, like a word of encouragement, right? Like you can do this. Anybody can write a visual analysis. You do not need to be an art history major. Mm -hmm. You do not need to be somebody that has gone to a million museums in your life. Uh, don't feel intimidated, right? I mean, I think using the word formal analysis is intimidating, but like break it down to analysis. You have done analysis before. Going back to, you know, thinking about like writing is hard and a formal analysis is intimidating at first, but I sincerely believe Anybody can write a formal analysis. All of us have practiced doing some sort of analysis in our life, whether it's in a different discipline or even just, I don't know, on Amazon comparing two robot vacuums uh, to each <laughs> other to determine which one you'd rather purchase because you can't afford a room. Or like now on TikTok, I think it's like you can stitch them together, right? Okay. Yeah. I, I don't have a TikTok. Mar I wish oh. Marissa were here to talk about TikTok, but uh -huh. I know like there's now like the... You're critiquing different things, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, that's, you know, they're analyzing the other yeah. TikTok, other Well, creators. thinking of, you know, even the, I'm thinking of the TikTok like where, you know, you have two subjects, like, person that likes to stay in, person that likes to stay out, and then you have the Jenners, oh, yeah, you know, and walking <laughs> and they choose which one. Like, that is exercising analysis of some type. Mm -hmm. So, this isn't a foreign concept to you. Maybe it's, for you know, the, the idea of applying it to art or, like, to a visual media that might be a little bit different, but I promise practice, 
you know, look, read a bunch of stuff. You know, more you read, the better writer you become. Uh, if you have the opportunity to read your classmates' work, read their work, don't copy them, but read their work and see how they're going about um, writing about things because that's another way to learn is by reading and seeing how other people do it. Looking at examples, there are lots of examples of visual analysis. Again, you know, like we broke down the elements talking specifically, but you're definitely going to have people that have examples of Frida Kahlo paintings that yeah, have or been. Maybe even your professor is going to provide you with some mm -hmm. examples of past students who have done it really well. And so you can kind of see like what it is that people your own age are or like own level are, are doing and that way it's not so intimidating and another thing you can take it to go to the writing center yes. your tuition pays for it use like, your resources yeah and like i give my students five points extra credit on their assignment if they take it to the writing center so maybe your professor does the same thing or maybe you have a writing fellow at uh we had a writing fellow caitlin was the writing yeah, fellow and she saw so many students and she helped them and like you know, it's crazy, but when you have students that go to the writing center or learning fellow, whatever you want to call it, and then maybe they even meet with their professor in office hours, you know, it's kind of crazy, but those students usually make A's. I don't know about you, but I yeah. like to make A's. So, yeah, there's so many different ways you can get through this. And the next two episodes, I'm going to have a historical context, which will be like when you're taking your visual analysis to the next level. And then after that, uh, episode 22 will be... Um, comparing and contrasting. So this is where you bring in, you know, historical context. And then now you're also going to apply this to another work and how you're yeah. going to compare those two works. So visual analysis is the stepping stone to your art history class. So um, that's why it's so important to, to do your best and to, you know, take your time with it. Um, but I think that sort of wraps us up for today. So... Make sure you follow on social media. Uh, my Instagram and Twitter is at Artwatch Podcast. And Caitlin, what's yours again? I know we can, I'm going to put it Caitlin down the bottom. Caitlin Duh Texas. Yes. And so I'm going to put her um, Instagram and Twitter in the bio of the episode, as well as on the blog post for this episode. So uh, I hope you all have a wonderful week, and I'm so excited to be getting back to making episodes for you all. Bye! Bye! <laughs>